Hi, this is Phil Zimmerman, creator of PGP, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This is episode 243 for October 25th, 2021. And we have a, a truly, a truly special interview for you today. And I've talked to this man before, and we've actually even talked about his history before, but not in this much detail and not with this much nostalgia. And of course, I'm talking about Phil Zimmerman, uh, the creator of Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP, which is still, to this day, the golden standard when it comes to encrypting an email that you want to send to somebody. Uh, or anything, actually, you can use it to encrypt many things, but traditionally it was used to encrypt the contents of your email so that you could have a private conversation, which... When this was created in the early 1990s was not something that you could really do. We kind of take it for granted today that we have all these various methods to encrypt our communications, including complete end-to-end encryption communications. That was not always the case. And so June of 2021 marked the 30th anniversary of the creation and distribution of Pretty Good Privacy. And since I knew Phil, uh, I wanted to do something to commemorate this anniversary and celebrate, you know, 30 years of PGP. And he and I have been going back and forth on this literally for months. Uh, We started talking about it over the summer before I went to DEF CON, and I had, you know, several ideas in my head of what I wanted to do. And, you know, my first knee-jerk reaction was, you know, hey, why why don't we do... Why don't we do, like, a tutorial video and talk about how you would run a key signing party? And I'll I'll describe later what a key signing party is. But basically, when you're you know communicating with someone on PGP, you use a public and private key pair. Uh, this is something that was invented, I think, back in the 70s, and it allows you to have one key to encrypt a message and a different key to decrypt that message. They were they were paired. These keys were made together, and as part of that pair, you could you could encrypt with one and decrypt with the other, and so. The public key is something that you would make widely available. And if you wanted people to trust that public key and make sure that it really was from you, he also had this notion of a web of trust, of establishing what he calls introducers for that key, where other people could sign your key and say, yes, I validate that this key belongs to Carrie Parker. And there's a lot more to that than you might think. And anyway, so there there would be this thing where you'd want people to sign your key and, you know, to kind of have a fun social way of doing that and get a lot of keys all at one time, you could host a key signing party, which again, you know, back in the nineties, this was, this was an uber geeky thing to do. This was not well known or well understood. And it was kind of all came because of PGP. And so I thought, you know, what, you know, maybe as a kind of a fun way to proactively get nostalgic about PGP, wouldn't it be kind of cool to host a key signing party? And I actually did this myself several years ago, uh, and I had some friends over, some of my geeky software engineering friends, and I, I talked them into doing this key signing party, and <laughs> I seriously doubt that any of them have, you know, since used that PGP key for anything. I have, but they haven't, probably. So anyway, it was more, again, it was 
and this was true back in the day too, the PGP key signing parties, there was the functional part of it where you wanted to have someone sign your key so that when someone goes and finds your public key and notices that there are some signatures on that, that they might recognize like, oh, well, not only do I know Carrie, but I know this other person who signed Carrie's key. And that makes it even more trustworthy because I know that other person too. And I know they wouldn't have just signed this for the heck of it. They would have done their due diligence. And so I can, you know, that gives me even more reason to trust that I really have Carrie's public key here. But to fill the key signing parties were more than that. And they were social events. They were, you know, reasons to get together and talk to people and hang out. And, you know, maybe because you're doing this kind of geeky thing, you know, have some really kind of deep discussions over drinks or whatever about privacy and mass surveillance and, you know, some of these political topics. Because, you know, those were important too. And, of course, you know, just socializing in general. But then after talking with Phil, going back and forth about, you know, what, you know, what we would do for a modern key signing party and kind of debating all these details, in the end, we just decided, you know, what, what's really important here is to celebrate PGP itself and to talk about its history and get, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, not only how he kind of came up with this and why he did it, but the troubles he had when he, when he distributed this thing uh, back in the mid-90s, because, you know, the government at the point, at that point was actively trying to prevent just such a tool from getting out, particularly from it getting out internationally. And Phil's got some really interesting stories about why that is and and why he feels that they had that approach to it. We'll talk about the crypto wars, uh, the so-called crypto wars from the 1990s, which he was very much a part of. But there were other efforts at that time to functionally break and backdoor encryption so that our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies could, if they wanted to, break into anybody's encryption. And and as it turns out, you know, everything old is new again. We are doing that all over again now. So we're going to talk about all that today with Phil Zimmerman. There's such a rich history with this particular privacy tool. And I'm so glad to have gotten Phil on the program to finally get this together and talk about it. It was just a fascinating interview. Now, before I get to the interview, uh, I, I want to talk about a couple things. As usual, if there's some jargon, you know, in the interview, I want to kind of, you know, put that out there up front so that, you know, as we talk about it during the interview and we don't really explain it, that you'll have some sense for what it means. But I just want to generally say that even though there are some definite jargony and technical terms that are around here, that is not the focus of this interview. And you don't have to understand them at all to, you know, reap the benefits of the nostalgia in this discussion we're about to have. Nevertheless, I do want to throw out a few terms that that, that we don't really define as we go uh, to make sure that you, know, you have some context for what they mean. And one of the things we talk about is VoIP, and that is spelled V-O-I-P, or Voice Over Internet Protocol. So that's a fancy term, but it's really Vonage <laughs> or your, you know, your cable companies now, if you know, your internet provider often offers some sort of digital phone plan. That's all of this is. And in fact, Skype and FaceTime and all any, any of these products where you are having a voice communication using an internet tool, that's voice over IP or VoIP. We also talk a lot about bits, you know, like a 40-bit encryption or 56-bit DES, which was the digital encryption standard, I think is what DES stood for back in the day. All these things are bits or, you know, just computer bits, ones or zeros. And generally speaking, and Phil will drive this point home in the interview, assuming you've got a good crypto algorithm, then the strength of your encryption comes down to how big or how good or how random or all the above of an encryption key that you use. And we talked about public and private keys. 
So, you know, the longer the key, generally speaking, the harder it is to crack, because if you can't guess that key, then you actually have to go through every possible combination of bits to try to figure out what that key is. And that becomes computationally infeasible uh, the longer that key becomes. He also dropped a couple names, uh, Carl Sagan, which I imagine many of you would know. Carl Sagan was an astrophysicist, an astronomer, an all-around amazing person <laughs> uh, who had the show, the original show, Cosmos, back in the day, which was a wonderful show. I remember watching that as a kid. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has since revived that Cosmos series, which is also a great series. But he mentions Carl Sagan, and that's who that is. But he also mentioned Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who you may not be familiar with, but if you've heard of the Pentagon Papers, he was famous for leaking those, I think, back in the 70s. So again, another activist, and Carl Sagan was uh, an activist in his own way too, I believe. So he makes a couple name drops there, and I thought I'd uh, make sure I explain those in case you weren't familiar with those names. All right, two really quick notes before we start the interview. Uh, first of all, last week, uh, as I was reading an article, uh, I mentioned somebody named Karsten Knoll, and kind of on the fly, I picked a pronoun of she, and that was not correct. Karsten Knoll is a man. He is a German cryptography expert, uh, and I just picked one on the fly, and I picked incorrectly. Second, this is the last week to get your challenge coins. If you missed it over the summer, the promotion is going again for the month of October. It will end on November 2nd. Stay tuned for more information about the challenge coins because your time is running out to pick up one of those super cool security enhancing devices. All right, that's enough weight. Let's get to this amazing interview with Phil Zimmerman. Phil Zimmerman is the creator of Pretty Good Privacy, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary. PGP is still widely regarded as the gold standard for secure email communication and caused quite a bit of controversy when it was introduced in the early 1990s. Phil went on to form Silent Circle and win several prestigious awards, including the U.S. Privacy Champion, and was inducted into the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Glad to be here, Terry. Well, in light of the recent anniversary, the PGP anniversary, I wanted to spend some time kind of going back through the development and deployment of this uh, seminal security and privacy tool. You know, I want to help the audience understand its significance and impact and, you know, make sure we, you know, learn from its history so perhaps we aren't doomed to repeat it. So, uh, you know, let's set the Wayback Machine and wax nostalgic. Take us back. Take us back to the early 1990s. Like, what were you doing at that time and why were you concerned about the security of your emails? Well, I, I was doing a lot of consulting work for on real-time embedded systems on 8-bit microprocessors, you know, running at like 4 megahertz. <sighs> yeah, right. So this was, this was certainly back in the dinosaur age. Hmm. But I wanted to find ways for people to communicate securely. And what I really wanted to do was secure telephony. Hmm. But it, it was out of the question to try to pursue that at the time. I, I, I did work on a, on a project to try to do that, but it was just too difficult to get the performance out of the hardware of the day. Hmm. Uh, and also, nobody had broadband, so right. you know there was no point going with that. The easier thing to accomplish, though, was secure email. So then it doesn't matter how long it takes to to do the computation. It's just email. So weren't you involved in activism at the time? Well, in the 1980s, I was. Um, I was uh, active in trying to stop the nuclear arms race. Mm -hmm. You know, the Cold War was going on, and uh, people were afraid that nuclear war was almost inevitable. <laughs> right, yeah. Brezhnev was in the Kremlin, and uh, Reagan was in the White House. And, and so I was active in teaching a class on military policy issues. I did civil disobedience at the Nevada Nuclear Weapons Test Site. I was in jail with Carl Sagan. Oh, wow. 
and Daniel Ellsberg. Most of your audience is probably too young to remember. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't be so sure. People. And did that did that factor into this? Was that all, was that was that also behind your wanting to have secure communications? Well, yes. Um, my activism of the 1980s was largely about protesting against the government, uh, and the government had a lot of capabilities to hmm. intercept communication. In third world countries, human rights workers and and grassroots political organizations were were targeted. So I wanted to have technology that could be used for that too. And and so years later in 1991, when I did PGP, or when I was, or in 1990 is when I really started working on it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of human rights projects. I was thinking of human rights groups and domestic grassroots political organizations to protect people from their own government. Right. So that's what I had in mind most about PGP. Well, you know, today, I mean, regular everyday people uh, have ready access to strong encryption if you know where to look. And we've talked about it, you know, on the program a lot. But things were different back in the early 90s, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> so oh, it, yeah. describe for us what things were like back then. At first, you know, just from an objective technical standpoint, what were kind of the what was kind of the state of the art at the time. And then politically, it was very different, too, because, you know, the government was the government did not like regular people having encryption. So bring, again, bring us back like to that time. Like what, what were the technologies of the time before PGP and, and what, how was the government kind of putting their thumb on the scales? Well, there wasn't much uh, strong encryption at the time. Even other software products that used public key cryptography were using 56-bit DES as the block cipher. Mm -hmm. And so that could be broken by any government or any resourceful organization. And, and so there really wasn't any way for the average person to protect themselves, to communicate s securely over great distances without the risk of interception. And so with PGP, that changed. It was possible for the first time to, for the average person to communicate over great distances without the risk of interception. Now, uh, governments, of course, could communicate over great distances with, you know, strong encryption, mm -hmm. um, but not, not ordinary people. So by comparison, do you, do you know what the governments at the time were using? Like what kind of, what encryption technology were they using at the time? Do you know? Well, they were certainly using something stronger than 56-bit DES. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the government had secure telephony at the time. Uh, uh, the STU-3, the secure telephone unit, STU-3 was used for phone calls for, you know, military applications. If NORAD and Cheyenne Mountain wanted to discuss a possible Soviet <laughs> missile attack with... with you right. know, with their chain of command, they, they would get on a SKU-3 and, and talk on that. Right. But those were, you know, not available for ordinary people. So PGP was a kind of poor man's uh, strong encryption. And, you know, it wasn't a telephony product. It was an email product. So that was within reach of the average person, you know. Right. So with that, well, during the development of PGP, it looked like the government was going to make a, a move toward outlawing it. Mm -hmm. There was some legislation that was proposed at the time that would encourage communication companies, communication service providers to put back doors in their products and services. Right. Now that never became law. That was, that was a proposed legislation. And when I saw that, I realized that I better hurry because, um, <laughs> You know, what if it's not going to be legal soon? 
Right. So I decided that it had this had to be free so that I could change the facts on the ground so that it would proliferate and become harder to stop. So PGP was released in June of 1991 for free, and it spread all over the Internet really fast. The appetite for it was was strong. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. And I'm going to get to that deployment in a minute. But back at – so one of the other things I recall from the time, actually a couple things that, that you triggered memories, is – at some point back then, the government put export controls on encryption. Oh, they, yeah. They labeled it a munition, right? And they limited it to 40 bits? That's right. Yeah. And the reason for that is because you have to go back to World War II and look at how decisive cryptanalysis played, what a role cryptanalysis right. played in that war. We've all heard about the Allies breaking the Enigma machine mm -hmm. the Germans had. We also broke the Japanese codes, the, the Purple Code in the Pacific Theater. And in fact, the Battle of Midway was decisively won by the Americans, even though the Japanese had superior forces. They didn't know that, you know, we had the element of surprise. They thought they had the element of mm. surprise, but we inter intercepted their communications and we knew where they were. And so we ambushed them and we won the Battle of Midway. And that that really... That that was a decisive blow to the Japanese naval capabilities in the Pacific theater. And the rest of the war took advantage of that. We took advantage of that. So, and, and of course, everybody's heard about at Bletchley Park, they broke the Enigma mm -hmm. machine and, and other German codes. And that probably shortened that war by a couple of years. So both, both the Pacific and the Atlantic theater were probably shortened by a couple of years by cryptanalysis. And so the... The Allied powers formed their opinion about what to do with, you know, strong cryptography. They, they wanted to be able to have good analytic capabilities against any opponent that might come up. Right. Because of the positive experience they had in <laughs> right. World War II with being able to break their opponent's encrypted communication. So they, they formed that attitude and that attitude persisted all the way up into the 90s in the beginning of the 90s. The export controls that the United States had made it illegal to export strong cryptography. They treated it as a munition. There was a list of munitions uh, that could not be exported, and one of those things was strong cryptography. Other things were weapons, you know, stinger missiles. Right. You know, helicopter gunships. All lumped in the same category, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that was the attitude that they had at the time. But the Internet was was starting to come around and and, you know, it became necessary for the whole of society to have strong encryption, to take advantage of the Internet, to do e-commerce, to do all kinds of things that you need right. strong encryption for. So it had to be out with the old and in with the new. The old attitudes about encryption was, you know, from the, the mid 20th century and, and here was the internet. And so it was time to recognize that we have a new world and, you know, we better get with the program. So uh, I took the entire nineties to, as a political struggle to get the U S to drop their export controls, to get the French to drop their domestic controls. The British had a little bit of both and the rest of the European allies were essentially just copying the, the triumvirate of mm -hmm. the U.S., uh, the U.K., and France. And it took pretty much the whole decade. It took all the way to the end of the decade to, to get rid of all of it. 
And that was collectively referred to as the crypto wars, right? That's right. Uh, the U.S. didn't have domestic controls at the time, but the FBI was pressing hard to get domestic controls. Mm. The, the French had domestic controls, but no export controls. And the British had uh, a bit of both. And part of that was, and I think you were referring to this earlier, you alluded to technologies like the clipper chip, right? Tell, tell us about what that was about. Well, AT&T had this product called the AT&T 3600. And it was a little box that you plug your phone into, a desktop phone, you know, the, the typical desktop phone of that time. And you would plug it into this box. It had two RJ11 connectors on it. And the other one would have a cable that goes to the wall. Instead of plugging your phone into the wall, you plug it into this little box, and the little box had another socket to plug into the wall. Okay. And so it was a bump in the wire, and mm -hmm. its purpose was to encrypt phone calls on analog phone lines. And it had a little modem inside and a, and a, uh, a digital signal processor chip, and it would train up the modems. You had to have the same box at the other end, and it would do a Diffie-Hellman exchange, and then it would... Well, you know, you had a button that says go secure. So you start the call with an ordinary call, analog mm -hmm. call. You'd say, hello, how's the weather? Okay, let's go secure now. You press the button and it would train up the modems and then do a Diffie-Hellman exchange. Okay. And, and then it would run the rest of the call through a, a codec to compress and decompress your voice and encrypting that. And so that was a product that they had. And it used 56-bit DES as the encryption algorithm. Now, 56-bit okay. DES was pretty easily broken by SA uh, at that time, but they still didn't want this to happen. They wanted maybe 40-bit encryption, mm -hmm. but they just didn't want people to have a product like right. this. So NSA went out and bought up all the entire production run of the AT&T 3600, oh, wow. so nobody else could buy it. And huh. then they cut a, cut a deal with AT&T to say, well, look, take out that, that DES chip you've got in there and put this Clipper chip in instead. So the Clipper chip was an encryption device that had actually was a lot stronger than DES. It had 80-bit keys, which is vastly more strong mm -hmm. than 56-bit keys. But every chip had a special uh, key burned into it at, at the factory. Every chip had a different key. And they built a big database of these mm -hmm. keys and kept it for wiretap purposes. And so um, when you encrypt things, it would, you know, negotiate a session key with Diffie-Hellman, and then it would take that session key and encrypt it with the key that was embedded in the chip and, and send that along, you know, at the beginning of the call. And so that means that the government could intercept that and then decrypt that session key using the key that they retrieve from the giant database. And so then they would be able to wiretap the call. And so this was definitely a big brother inside yeah, right. <laughs> uh, concept. They, they called it key escrow because, mm -hmm. you know, they would, they would keep this database and promise not to look in there unless, <sighs> right. unless duly authorized by law. You know, you have to take their word for that. Mm -hmm. And so for some odd reason, the market did not accept this. People <laughs> never bought it. Yeah, Much to the surprise why. of the FBI. Yeah. Right. The, you know, it's a sort of the invisible hand of the market, right? Right. So the FBI kind of got pissed off that nobody wanted to buy this. But this was the AT&T 3600 that, you know, was like reissued. It was like the looked the same, you know. It had mm. it actually had stronger encryption. Mm. <laughs> but but it was backdoored. Right. <laughs> so so 
nobody bought any, certainly not enough to, to make it a profitable product. So Louis Free, who was director of the FBI, said that if the market rejected products built with key escrow, then the FBI would have no choice but to seek legislative relief. Mm. In other words, the FBI would go to Congress and ask Congress to pass laws against any other kind of encryption. In other words, he was trying to impose domestic controls on encryption, which at that time, there were no domestic controls on encryption. The French had domestic controls, but not the U.S. The U.S. only had export controls. So how did that how did that fail? Like what? what? Well, there was a public backlash against that idea. And not only were people rebelling against domestic controls, but they were also pushing hard to get rid of the export controls. Mm -hmm. And so at the center of the export control debate was uh, PGP. And so, um, you know, almost every issue of Wired magazine during the decade of the 90s had an article of about either me or PGP or something, you know, there would be an article about the export controls, and then there would be a little sidebar on PGP or me. So, um, I, you know, <laughs> so I had a, I collected a big stack of wired magazines. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Neat. All right. So let, let's go back to that time again. Like, so how did you, like, how did you develop this? And were you working with friends and colleagues? Was this something you did completely on your own? Did you, did you already have the technical knowledge or did you have to do a little research? The first version of it, I, I mostly worked alone. I had for about, I don't know, two or three years before that, I had learned how to do the, the multi-precision integer math. I had a friend who had done large integer math using Z80 microprocessors, these 8-bit microprocessors, mm-hmm. and uh, he had written it in Z80 assembly language. So I hung out with him for a while and learned how to do it. And then I, I did it in C so that mm-hmm. I could run it on, on more capable platforms. And that was the f- one ingredient. And, and I also had to get, you know, symmetric cryptography. And I developed a, a block cipher that turned out to be not a very good block cipher. But that was because I didn't know any better. I, right. I had yeah. the, you know, I was a victim of the, uh, of the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. You know, I, yes. <laughs> so where, some, where people who, if you're sufficiently dumb about something, you don't realize how dumb you are. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so I was... I was definitely afflicted with that, you know. The first rule of crypto is you never roll your own crypto, right? <laughs> that's and that's right. Absolutely. Don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, PGP version 1.0 had this horribly horrible design for a block cipher called the Basimatic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I called it the Basimatic because that was named after a Saturday Night Live skit. Classic Chevy Chase. Or no, Dan Aykroyd. Yep. Dan Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Dan Aykroyd and a a blunder and a fish. Yep. Oh, that was funny. (laughs) So so my block cipher did to the data what the blunder did to the fish. It scrambled it up. (laughs) And so when I released version one, version 1.0 of PGP, it had the Bassomatic. Now for short messages, it was probably okay, you know, because... I went to the IACR crypto conference, the International Association for Cryptologic Research, in 1991, and had Ellie who was a, a PhD student for Adi Shamir, who had just published a paper on, on differential cryptanalysis and attacking the DES. And so I had him look at the Basimatic, and mm-hmm. it took me a long time to do the Basimatic. I worked on it for, I don't know, a year or two. 
and he broke it in 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he, he just looked at it, you know, it, we spent eight, eight minutes of me explaining it to him and then two minutes of him telling me where the problems were, wow. you know? And so I was humiliated by that experience and realized <laughs> that I'm definitely not a cryptographer. It, it really uh, helped cure me of the Dunning-Kruger effect, at least for that it did. <laughs> so what did you end up doing? What was Well, I, I picked another block cipher that had been through a lot of peer review mm-hmm. and, and had been published and, you know, had other cryptographers had spent time attacking it without success. And so, you know, it had good peer review. It was called the uh, International Data Encryption Algorithm, uh, the IDEA cipher. And so for, you know, for a couple of years, that was the, the, the cipher that I used beginning with PGP version two for, I don't know how long, maybe that was for three years, perhaps okay. three years, maybe longer. It, it was a really good block cipher. So I didn't roll my own after that. I, I used <laughs> other people's block ciphers that had been through a lot of peer review. Peer review is so important. Yeah. What, a lot of people who first get into cryptography, they're good at software engineering, so they imagine they would be also good at cryptography. And that is an absolute illusion. Because when you write software, you know, if you write software to uh, do something really hard, like a, a robot that walks up the stairs without falling, you know, it's just you against the laws of physics. You know, you can handle that. But cryptography is not like that. Cryptography is you against other very clever people that are trying to break what you do. Yep. You know, I mean, the moon landing was doable because it was humans against the laws of physics, right? Yeah. But what if there were anti-aircraft guns on the moon shoot, trying to shoot down the Apollo astronauts, you know? Right. Yeah, that's harder, much harder. <laughs> How do you land on the moon under those conditions? Right. We're taking flack. So when you have smart people fighting against smart people, you know, they both have to get a lot smarter and they have to get smarter than the other guy. The other guy has to get smarter than you. And so it goes on for, you know, and it becomes an arms race. And there has already been an arms race for centuries between cryptographers and cryptanalysts. Yeah. And so the state of the art moves forward. And by the time the 1990s arrived, cryptography had gotten quite strong and cryptanalysis had gotten strong cryptography was ahead of the game at that time and has been ahead of the game since then but if you didn't participate in that arms race or if you didn't at least read the papers in the journals in the academic journals then if you sit at home alone isolated in your basement in the dark Mm -hmm. and you just try to use your imagination to how to make a good block cipher you're absolutely positively going to fail yeah and you won't know it because you're right. doing it alone in isolation. Right. You know, if you develop cryptography algorithms home alone, you're doomed. The only way to do it is to be plugged into the academic environment of, you know, academic cryptography. Yeah, Read that... all the papers. And, and, you know, and maybe if you think you can do it, then, well, then, okay, you, you, you could write it up in a paper and try to get it published and see if anybody can attack it. And, you know, that's... A, a much better approach right but i didn't do that i just did it alone home and so i came up with a completely stupid block cipher so just for, just for uh historical sake you, we were talking about you know 56 bit des and 40 bit you know munitions encryption restrictions what would the original pgp allowed you to set your own key so you could pick your own key length well the block cipher was was the most unusual design the key length really isn't the the most 
important thing. The most important thing is to have a good design for the block cipher. And the key length is, you know, if you if you have a well-designed block cipher, then the key length determines the strength, right. uh, you know, how, how long it takes someone to, to break through it to do key exhaustion. But if you have a badly designed block cipher, then people don't have to do key exhaustion. They can break it in a much right, shorter right. time. Right. So the key length, you could have a key, you know, with a zillion bits, and it doesn't <laughs> matter if you're if you design it incompetently, then nobody has to right. do that by key exhaustion. But anyway, I'm, maybe I'm spending a little too much time on, <laughs> on on the stupidity of that. So starting with version two, which took about was about 15 months later, all the encryption was far better. You know. Yeah. So let's let's talk about how you roll this out, like uh, you personally, like so. Given the political and you know climate at the time, like how did you publish this? You published the source code. Did you? How did you distribute it? How did? Yeah. Were you worried about being arrested or or walk us through that? I have to say that I, I wasn't. I didn't really think that it was likely I would be arrested. I wasn't exporting it exactly. Uh, <laughs> I gave it to a couple of friends who uploaded it to the internet, and I didn't really know very much about how things worked on the internet at that time. I, and most of the stuff that I was doing was dialing up bulletin boards, mm-hmm. electronic bulletin boards with my modem. Right. And, you know, I was using a modem. Remember those oh, days? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and so, you know, I would just dial up a bulletin board. 9600 baud and, and, and 14.4 was a big, big jump. And oh, yeah, I remember that's those days. right. There was a protocol for uploading files called Z modem, you know, that I use that. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- that I mean, this was really you know, before the internet really took off. Right. And so I didn't know that much about, I mean, there were these things called news groups on the internet. Right. And so you could upload something to a news group and, and supposedly you could even say how far you wanted it distributed domestic Hmm. only international, whatever. And so I, you know, somebody told me that they could do that. And I said, okay, well just do it domestic only. I don't want to get in trouble for this. (laughs) Little did I realize right. that this domestic only doesn't actually have anything to do with where it really goes. It was simply a tag that, you know, that the in the news groups they would have this tag domestic only, and then the whatever the servers are that you know copy that stuff over would decide for themselves whether to respect that tag. Right, right. So of course it just spread all around the world really of course. fast. So I, I know at some point you did start taking some heat for this, right? I mean, so what, like, did you have lawyers at some point? Did you have a human rights groups with you? Like, what kind of pressure, if anything, did you actually get? What, what, what kind of trouble did you get in? Well, I didn't get in much trouble at first. I did get a call from RSA because they had a patent on the RSA mm. algorithm. So they were angry. But I was giving this away for free, so I, I didn't really feel like I was doing that much wrong. And besides, it had to be free to spread as far as possible right, right. because it might become illegal soon. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to preempt it becoming illegal by getting it in everybody's hands quick. So there was an angry response from RSA Data Security, Inc. And so they didn't want me doing that. Sure. On the other hand, I also wanted to, to fix a lot of problems like replace the Bassomatic and do that sort of thing. I made a lot of improvements with the help of a lot of volunteers all around the world. There was somebody in, in the Netherlands, there was somebody in Southern California, hmm. and there was somebody in New Zealand. And and there were plenty of other volunteers that were translating it into quite a few foreign languages and also adapting it to different platforms. The Commodore Amiga, the mm. Atari, uh, you know, the, the VAX mini computer, 
various Unix boxes. Yeah. So that went on for more than a year. And then when I released PGP version two, which had better everything, many foreign languages, many platforms, much better cryptography, you know, and plus the trust model, the trust, the mm -hmm. trust model. I didn't really implement the trust model in the first version because I was running out of time. I had missed five consecutive mortgage payments Ooh. <laughs> because I was working on it. Wow. Look, young, young engineers are pathological optimists when it comes to <laughs> estimated time required yes. to get a project finished. Yes, indeed. And so I, you know, I was, I was a little too optimistic about estimating. <laughs> I thought I could do the whole thing in three months, but well, that's just not the case. So when did you start feeling the heat? When did, when, when did you start getting, you know, when did you start getting the attention of government law enforcement? Well, I think it was PGP version 2.6.2, 262. Well, it, it was two point something that I got contacted mm -hmm. by U.S. Customs. But I was officially informed that I was a target of a criminal investigation when PGP version 2.6.2 was out. And when was that, like time-wise? Well, I got the first contact from Customs. I think it was in, maybe it was in February of, must have been 93. Okay. Yeah. But I think they were looking at me earlier than that. Sure. U.S. Customs agents called me from San Jose. I was living in Boulder at the time. Okay. And they, and they said that they um, wanted to learn something about PGP. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, I <laughs> was happy to talk to them. You know, maybe they encountered PGP in their, in their investigations and maybe they needed some advice on what to do. <laughs> Sure. PGP, you know. So I was happy to answer their question, but then they said, well, they would like to come fly out to Colorado and meet with me face to face. Uh, two customs agents hmm. wanted to meet me face to face. And that's when I thought, hmm, that sounds like maybe they're interested in something other than getting a few mm -hmm. tutorial explanations over the phone. Right. So, so that's when I decided that I'd better contact a lawyer. So I contacted a criminal lawyer. Just somebody out of the phone book, or did you find? Did you like? Did you know somebody who actually works on human rights? I asked another lawyer for advice on who to contact, and he gave me the name of a criminal lawyer. Okay. So Phil Dubois was the lawyer that I hired, and Phil Dubois was a, an experienced criminal trial lawyer, and he represented criminals. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which was kind of a surprise to me when I visited his office for the first time. I came in and and I saw there was a a box on the floor. It said Michael Bell's discovery documents. And Michael Bell was a murderer. You know, oh, I thought, my. oh my God, this guy defends murderers. What am I doing here? You know, <laughs> I felt, I felt dirty, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so he agreed to, uh, you know, after some discussions, he agreed to allow a conversation with the U uh, S customs agents. If, if it took place in his office mm. with him sitting next to me to make sure that nothing bad happened. Right. And so they flew out there and they did an interview with me with uh, Phil Dubois next to me in his office. And so they were a bit confused. <laughs> they, they thought that uh, PGP was stolen from, huh. from RSA. And, oh, and from, okay. There was a patent cartel called Public Key Partners, which was, a, which was put together by RSA and a, and a company in California that had several patents relating to public key algorithms. Okay. Yeah. And so Public Key Partners was called PKP, and they thought PGP must be stolen from PKP uh, because it had almost the same three letters. Interesting. You know? <laughs> and so anyway, so 
I answered some questions from them and, and uh, they went away. And then uh, later on, I don't remember exactly how much later, but soon after that, Phil Dubois was informed that I was the target of a criminal investigation. And there was a grand jury and, and they started subpoenaing documents and uh, calling up people that I knew and asking them to testify in front of the grand jury. And boy, that looks pretty serious. Yeah, oh, sure. So then I hired other lawyers. We put together a good criminal defense team. And this was still all about intellectual property. This wasn't about going afoul of the munitions or any of the export or stuff. This was all about... No, it was about export controls. Okay. But what, what happened was that RSA wanted to stop me from infringing their patent. And they didn't want to sue me in, in civil litigation because I asked one of their employees many months later, why didn't they just sue me? Why did mm-hmm. they try to put me in prison? And he said, well, it doesn't pay to sue a folk hero. Wow. So they would rather get the government to put me in prison, sure. have me rot in prison for, you know, for four years wow. <laughs> rather than be embarrassed by, you know, suing me. Right. Wow. Hmm. I mean, nobody goes to prison in civil litigation. Right, 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 right. So once they unleash the dogs of war, a criminal investigation has a life of its own. Yeah. And so once they started down that path, it was all about the export controls. Huh. The initial contact with the, with the prosecutor was motivated by intellectual property. Right. And so for th- the next three years, I was the target of a criminal investigation for violating the Arms Export Control Act, which is like if I was exporting weapons. Right, right. Then that would be the same law that, you know, that they were trying to get me on. That that has a prison sentence of 41 months to 51 months in a federal prison, according to the federal mandatory sentencing guidelines. I always thought it was funny that the word mandatory and guidelines appeared in the same (laughs) phrase. (laughs) Good point. So what, what happened? Well... I put together a really good legal defense team of volunteer lawyers. They worked for large enough law firms that they had pro bono committees and they could pay the salaries of their lawyers, even if they worked on pro bono cases. My lead defense counsel was a sole practitioner, so he had to have money to, you know, pay the bills. So Mm. we had a legal defense fund set up. People from all over the world contributed to it. And I convinced my legal defense team to let me talk to journalists which is a very unusual thing right. for a criminal, a criminal defendant. You know, uh, if you're under threat of indictment, your lawyers generally don't let right. you talk to journalists. But I, I made the case that it would be better if I talked to journalists. So, so I did for almost every day for the whole three years. I think it was like five times a week I talked to journalists. Oh, wow. And 100% of the articles were sympathetic to my case. Not 99%, 100%. And did that influence the outcome of the trial? Like, what, what happened? How, what, what was the outcome of the trial? Well, there was no trial. I, I, they didn't indict me. Oh, wow. They decided to decline to indict me. It went all the way to Maine Justice. And the Justice Department people in Washington decided after three years, they decided not to indict me. Huh. And, and they said that they would tell me why, but only if I agreed not to tell anyone. And I <laughs> didn't want to... I wasn't willing to make that agreement. So, however, my defense counsel, uh, Phil Dubois, he was happy to agree to that if they just tell him, but Mm. he couldn't tell me. 
So they told him why they declined uh, indicting me. And uh, and then I later asked Phil Dubois, were there any surprises? You know, Mm. and he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we had been, you know, imagining various explanations, like mostly evidentiary, like they had difficulty proving intent. Mm. Every time I gave a public talk, there would be somebody, somebody from the State Department taking notes, or maybe he would just buy the audio cassette of my talk. And so they were looking for evidence of intent. And I was very disciplined when I spoke publicly. I, you know, I mm-hmm. never revealed my intent, which I did have in the intention of it being exported because I wanted it to be used by human rights groups around the world. But I couldn't admit that huh. at the time. Wow, that's fascinating. So, all right, so let, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's let's maybe uh, think about what what's coming s- since then. So, but we're kind of back to where we were. Like we're having crypto wars two point or three point right? We're having the same kind yeah. of acts, you know, privileged access debates all over again today. We thought that we were finished with that yeah. twenty years ago. In two thousand, the U.S. had dropped their export controls. A couple years earlier, the French had dropped their export uh, their domestic controls. The British also backed off from their, uh, both of theirs. And, uh, and then the rest of the European allies followed suit. So, you know, in 2000, it was all, all finished. You could export strong encryption software. And then uh, as soon as that happened, strong encryption found its way into almost every important product. Every web browser had it. Mm-hmm. Mail clients had it to talk to the, you know, SMTP servers or IMAP servers. You know, VPNs, Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah, right? SSH. I, I mean, it's everywhere. Right. Strong crypto is just ubiquitous today. Yeah, and was ubiquitous. You know, very soon after they they lifted the export controls, so that should have been completely finished twenty years ago. But in the last few years, we have seen some pushback from several allied countries. The U.S., the U.K., Australia, yeah. Canada, New Zealand, also, oddly enough, Japan and India. I don't know why, mm. but several liberal democracies had uh, been pushing back against strong end-to-end encryption. It would seem to be ma- mainly focused on end-to-end encryption. I mean, they didn't object to TLS being embedded in your browser. Because right. that's not really end-to-end. That's from from a client to server. Right. But end-to-end is where they seem to be pushing back the hardest. And I think that maybe the reason why is because some years ago, WhatsApp got the Signal Protocol. Yeah. And WhatsApp had grown to a population of about a billion users right. before yeah, that happened. So there were a billion users using a product that had no encryption at all. And then the next morning... After an update got pushed out, right. there were a billion users with end-to-end encryption. Yeah, and so that that I think woke up a lot of the law enforcement community in, in a lot of in a, lot, a lot of countries. Right, and they they realized that having obscure little products that only attracted uh, clever people <laughs> didn't matter so much. But if it was put into a product that was in the hands of a billion people overnight. Right. That meant that criminals who weren't very smart 
suddenly had the protection of strong end and encryption without them even trying to learn about how to get it organized. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, back to PGP for a minute. How how has it evolved since that original rollout? You talked about 2.0 and a two point and some of that 2.x, but is it is like let's go to like today? Like, is it still in use today widely, and or has it been supplanted by other technologies? Is there still a role for PGP today? And if so, why or why not? Well, we're going to have strong, excuse me, we're going to have email for a long time. Yeah. Email is not a very safe place to have sensitive data. In fact, it's not a safe place to have any kind of communication, even not sensitive stuff. Yeah. Because you might get an attachment that offers you, you know, you click on some attachment, even if it's not very sensitive. You click on it and now you've got malware. Hmm. in a pdf file right you know if if hillary clinton's campaign manager john podesta had not clicked on a pdf sent to him by russian the russian gru then the 2016 election might have gone differently right right so email is a terribly dangerous place (laughs) Mm. yeah it's it's got a huge attack surface right and so uh yes if you're going to encrypt your email then pgp is the best way to do that but if you want to have end-to-end secure encryption and you want to have keys that are destroyed after the communication is finished, it's better that you use something else. I mean, for example, this conversation we're having right now is done over Signal. Right. We're using the VoIP features of Signal. Well, at the end of this call, the keys will be destroyed. Now, that doesn't matter because this is a podcast and you're going to play it around. <laughs> right. But, but, Play it for lots of people to listen right. to. But still, the protocol itself wipes out its keys at the end of the conversation. So there are modern encryption protocols that are designed for instant text messaging or VoIP. I've spent the last uh, 15 years or so, more than that, actually, on on secure VoIP. I did my first VoIP. My God, goodness, it's been 25 years since I did Mm. My first VoIP product in, in 1995, that's 26 years ago. And at that time, it was too early because nobody had broadband yet. Yeah, right, right. But later on, a decade later, I did have VoIP products that I had developed, a protocol called ZRTP. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically designed for two human beings to have a VoIP conversation. And there's also instant messaging. Signal, in my opinion, is the best instant messaging protocol because it is it solves the problem of what to do if the other party is offline. It's got a, some really good design features that take care of that problem. And so there's better ways to communicate than email. Yeah. And so there's there are encryption protocols that are designed for other communication channels. And so if I needed to do secure communications today, I probably would not choose email. And I'm not talking about what kind of encryption to use for email. Right. I'm talking about whether to use email at all. Right. You know, I just don't use email at all for secure communications. Now, one other problem that I have is that I use my iPhone a lot for my email. And there's no email client that I can use that has PGP encryption built into it. Right. And the way um, smartphones are, are designed, the operating systems for smartphones, both iOS and Android, it, you can't have PGP encryption separate from the mail client. The sandboxing right. is too good. 
Right. And so that means it's really hard to get email encryption done appropriately on a smartphone. And so for that reason, I, I find it difficult to use PGP. Uh, you, you know, if I'm doing almost all my email processing on my smartphone, I just don't have, it's not that I don't want to use PGP. I'd love to use PGP, but I can't on right. my smartphone. Right. So I don't do email encryption very often. What, what about some of the dedicated, um, and as, you know, the audience needs to understand that if you're going to use these, you need to stay within the intellectual property. In other words, both of you need to have an account like ProtonMail. If you're both on ProtonMail, you can have a ProtonMail app on your phone, and it, that would be by default ended encrypted. What about some of those kind of services? ProtonMail is, is a good choice. Uh, it, it does things on, I mean, it's a web-based service. So you download some JavaScript, I think, uh, and you run that in your browser. And it does um, the cryptographic calculations in your browser. And your keys are on the server, but they're encrypted on the server. So you have to download those keys into your browser, decrypt them using maybe your passphrase or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I'm not actually using ProtonMail right now, but I, I think it works something like this. Yep, yep, yeah, I use it. Yep, that's how it works. But there's a, there are iOS apps as well. You could do, you, you could do it through your your phone without you using a dedicated app without going through like the browser on your phone. You can they actually have a ProtonMail dedicated app too. Oh, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you could do encrypted email that way. I, I should probably do something like that. Uh, you know, it's a little too embarrassing to tell people <laughs> that I'm not using PGP. <laughs> Every time somebody sends me an encrypted message and I, you know, and I can't decrypt it on my phone, I, I, I write them back. Could you please send this as plain text? Oh, that's funny. You know, they send it as plain text saying, you, you've got to be kidding. You can't decrypt <laughs> PGP messages anymore. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't run on my phone. And, oh, that's funny. And so usually within a few hours, I get a call from a journalist, you know, because, mm. because the other guy posted something on social media that Phil Zerman's not using PGP. Right. And the journalist calls me you know, in disbelief and saying, is this true? This can't be true, right? And I said, oh, look, it's funny. not that I don't want to use PGP. It's just that it doesn't work on my iPhone. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> All right. So looking back over the last 30 years, what, what are you, what are you like most proud of when you think about PGP and, and maybe also thinking back, what might you have done differently if you had a chance to do it again? Well, you know, um, this is why time travel stories are so popular. <laughs> I, I would go back in time and tell my former self not to worry too much about the criminal investigation because it was always going to turn out well in the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> that would have saved me a lot of stomach acid. I'll bet. But, you know, we have a lot of modern encryption protocols today. Like, you know, TLS is everywhere. Probably the most widely deployed encryption protocol in existence. And, you know, and of course, every lots of people use SSH for remote access to servers. And then and lots of people are using VPNs and disk encryption, of course. And all these protocols are very capable protocols, but none of them have any stories. Hmm. PGP is a very storied protocol. PGP has lots of very interesting stories, maybe because it was the first big breakthrough in people having access to strong encryption. Right. And so it was, you know, specifically designed for people in high conflict situations and, you know, human rights workers, people mm -hmm. in, in war zones, uh, people in environments where other people are trying to kill them. Yeah. And so there really are a lot of really good stories I'm, on my website, philzimmerman.com, with two ends. Mm -hmm. There is a, a Web page on that site that has a, a sampling of letters of emails that I got many years mm -hmm. ago. 
telling stories about how PGP was used in some life-threatening situation. Wow. So even though there's plenty of encryption protocols around today, none of them have stories. <laughs> so give me one of those stories. Like what, looking back, what are you like, what is one of the stories that really sticks in your mind? One of the ones that you find most interesting or most impactful for PGP? Well, I think that the one that stands out in my mind that's the most impactful is uh, the safe evacuation of 8,000 civilians that were trapped in a, in a valley in Kosovo, surrounded mm -hmm. by hostile forces. And they used PGP with mobile phones to organize the safe evacuation of these 8,000 noncombatants. Oh, wow. So I think that, I, that may be the most impactful. But there's also this other little thing here it might not be so impactful but it captures the feeling of it, it early on mm -hmm. and it was in october 1993 that i got this uh email from latvia and it was on this on the same day that boris yeltsin was shelling his own parliament building mm -hmm. and, it, and it said phil i wish you to know let it never be but if dictatorship takes over russia your pgp is widespread from baltic to far east hmm. now, and will help democratic people if necessary. Thanks. Oh wow, that's cool. So that was um, that was something that made me feel good at I'll a time bet. when I needed to feel good. Yeah, right. Sure. Wow, that's awesome. You know, in 2014, I was getting uh, this award from the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Yep. And there were there were a number of government employees at this event, and so. A guy came up to me, this was an awards banquet, and he came up to me and said that he wanted to thank me, uh, that he was uh, from the human community, you know, not, mm -hmm. not the signals intelligence community, but the human intelligence mm -hmm. from the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he said that he wanted to thank me because he had a number of friends who are alive today only because of PGP. Oh, wow. And so that stood out in my mind. That that kind of stood out in my mind more than receiving the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Hall, of, Hall of Fame award, you know? Yeah. Wow. So there's lots of stories. So, you know, PGP captured the imagination of people early, early on in the crypto, in the crypto wars. All right. So one more question before, uh, before we go, and that is, you know, given that all you've been through and all you've seen you know, over these last 30 years with the rollout of PGP and some of these great stories you're talking about, what, I guess two parts, what, what, what are you most worried about in the future, but what also gives you hope? Well, what I worry about the most is the growth of pervasive surveillance. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere now, you know, as we move more and more of our lives into the digital realm, there's surveillance everywhere. People, you know, get on Facebook and give away everything about their personal lives. I think Facebook is planning to give everybody virtual reality goggles and right, yeah. having them live entirely under surveillance in the Facebook universe. And the metaverse, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It has turned quite dystopic. Hmm. And, and, uh, and social networks are destroying our democracy hmm. Mm -hmm. and encouraging people to turn against each other. Right, yeah. The business model, the revenue model, is driven by engagement, and nothing mm -hmm. drives engagement as much as outrage. Yeah. And so, Facebook algorithms promote outrage, and, yeah. and they weren't designed to specifically to promote right. outrage. 
the engineers who implemented them thought they were simply just doing something to optimize for advertising revenue. Right, right. And that means optimizing for engagement. And, and, you know, well, it just so happens that outrage is the best way to achieve engagement. Yeah. And so it has turned everybody against each other. I've never seen anything like this. It's worse than 1968. Wow. The United States is almost in a stage of civil war. Yeah. And there's other countries all over the world that are falling into this trap. Mm-hmm. You know, in Burma, there, there's there been genocidal behavior that's fueled by Facebook divisiveness. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing uh, liberal democracies slide into populist autocracies yeah. In, yeah. In, in, the, in the U.S., in Brazil, in, in uh, Italy, in Viktor Orban's Hungary, in Poland. It's happening in a lot of countries, and this is so dangerous and so dystopian. That worries me. That's what keeps me awake at night. So what what would you recommend to people to do today to head off some of this dystopian future that we're we're faced with? What what can people do? What would you recommend to our audience? Things they could be either getting involved or maybe technical solutions. Obviously, we've talked about things like Signal. What 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 are your what what are your tips for people who want to uh, avoid that future? Uh, you can't solve everything with just using strong encryption. I mean, mm-hmm. I I know I'm Mr. PGP and so I'm typecast, <laughs> sort of like Leonard Nimoy trying to get other acting jobs. <laughs> right, you know, everybody right. looks to me for saying use strong encryption and that'll solve all your problems. Right. Well, no, it's not going to solve all your problems. The problems that we have are much deeper than that. We're losing uh, democracy, and, and and it's because people are turning against each other. And so I would, the first thing I would say is get off Facebook. Hmm. Get off any social media that has a revenue model that optimizes you know, for this engagement and outrage. Hmm. Mm-hmm. First thing you got to do is do that. But even if you do that, you're still not safe because you live in a society where everyone else did not do that. Right. So, you know, not only do you have to get off that kind of social media, but you also have to try to get everyone else to get off it, too. Right. Yeah. And, and that that seems so difficult. <laughs> yeah. That is no mean feat. And of course, use strong encryption. Use end to end encryption. Uh, I mean, I live in Europe right now, so I've been living here for several years. And one of the things that that I think strong encryption is good for here is national security. European telcos have purchased 5G infrastructure equipment from China, from Huawei. Mm, yep. And Huawei was founded by the Chinese military. It is still largely controlled by the Chinese military. So it's very likely that these 5G cell phone towers that are being deployed by European telcos, which are, it's because they're superior to European vendors' uh, equipment that does the same thing. There's 5G vendors in Europe, but people the telcos here in Europe don't buy them mm. because they're, they're more expensive and they're not as good as Huawei's mm. products. So what we've got here is a 5G infrastructure being deployed that is giving China signals intelligence capabilities comparable to the NSA. Mm. And I think that's bad for national security in, yeah, sure. in, uh, all, in a whole bunch of European countries. And I think that if you're Operating over a network controlled by a potential adversary, which gives them tremendous SIGINT capabilities, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. then you better be using strong encryption that goes end to end, has to be end to end. And so 
that's not just a matter of privacy and civil liberties. That's a matter of national security. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Phil, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for taking us back and walking us through the history of PGP. And we just celebrated the 30th anniversary, which is so glad you were able to come on the show and talk to us about that. Thanks for coming on, Phil. My pleasure, Gary. So there you have it. What an amazing story. And, you know, again, there's, there are so many cryptographic tools that we now have, and we just take them all for granted. You know, I talk about Signal a lot, and even, you know, iMessage and TLS and HTTPS, and, you know, strong cryptography and encryption is everywhere today, uh, if you know where to look. And we just take it for granted, but hopefully now we understand that that wasn't a given. <laughs> we had to fight for that. And even though we're talking about it again now, I think another really important point to understand here is that the cat is out of the bag. The horse is out of the barn. This is just math. You can't outlaw math. And there's a lot of really great implementations of this math out in the wild. If you try now to stuff this genie back in the bottle, it's just not going to work. And we have people like Phil Zimmerman to thank for that. And I hope that now, if you didn't before, that you have a real appreciation for that. Phil has a great website, and you can check it out at philzimmerman.com, and that's with two N's on Zimmerman. And he's got several articles there that you might want to read, including his personal posting on June 6th of 2021 for the 30th anniversary of PGP. And of course, there's links in the show notes to his website, and uh, one directly to that article. Now, Phil also mentioned a great pop culture reference, and that was a Saturday Night Live skit with Dan Aykroyd about the Bassomatic. And I remember seeing this. I don't know if I was... I don't know if I saw it live, but I did watch Saturday Night Live a lot as a, when I was growing up as a kid. My parents were watching it, so I'd watch it while they watched it. I mean, back in the really old days, like a, a, not many people might remember this, but back in the old days, the Muppets, Jim Henson's Muppets, actually were on. They would have little skits on Saturday Night Live. And of course, I grew up with the Muppets because uh, I watched Sesame Street. But anyway, early on, I think this might even be in the first season, Dan Aykroyd had this bit about the Bassomatic. And. <laughs> And if you want to check it out, I've got a link in the show notes. You can go to NBC's website. And I actually couldn't watch it because somewhere I have got privacy blocking stuff that just refused to let that video load. But I know I know it well. And you can get other little kind of partial clips on YouTube if you look for them hard enough. But it's Dan Aykroyd in front of a basically a household blender uh, with the label Bassomatic on the front. And... <laughs> And, you know, he's like, you know, you have a hard time scaling and, uh, you know, gutting your fish, you know, getting all the bones out. Well, you know, no more. And, you know, this was in an infomercial style. And he takes a bass, like an actual whole bass, and puts it in a blender and blends it up. And, you know, hilarity ensues. So anyway, that that was the reference. And uh, if you if you want, I would seriously, if you have not seen that, check out the uh, the video clip of that. It's it's classic. And so, of course, Phil, when he was talking about the Bassomatic, that was the name he gave to a, his own cryptography that he rolled himself. And as we said in there, this is a classic mistake that a lot of people who believe they're smart make when they're trying to work with cryptography. And you just don't ever roll your own. You're going to get it wrong. You've, you've it, It's hard. I mean, the math is good, but it is not easy. And it's real easy to screw up. Which is why all of our best cryptographic algorithms are completely public. They are completely known. They are published and well understood because the people who come up with them put them out there for vetting by other really smart people. And it gives other, you know, cryptographic researchers the chance to beat up on it and try to find flaws. And that's how we make these things better. 
but I've got to relate one experience myself because I did the same thing. I I am also a victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect where I thought I was a little smarter than I really was. And when I was a young software engineer at a startup company in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, I was in a situation where I needed to kind of encrypt something. I, I didn't want something to be obvious. I wanted it to be obfuscated. And so I rolled my own crypto. And, you know, it, luckily it wasn't for anything super important. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not too worried about it, but it was a fun challenge. And what I ended up doing, it was kind of a stream thing, a, a, a stream cipher where you could take any number of bits in and kind of turn them into something unintelligible as an output, and then you could reverse that process. And what I did is I came up with something based on a Rubik's Cube. And a Rubik's Cube is, of course, is a 3 by 3 by 3 colored cube. Looks like a looks like a die. It has six faces. And on each of those faces in a Rubik's Cube, there are nine cubes. So, you know, 3 times 3 times 3, that's 27 cells or, you know, mini cubes that make up the entire cube. And so what I did is I kind of took I pictured this Rubik's cube in my head as an, you know, unadulterated with all the colors correct on all six sides. And I would read into that three by three by three array, all of these bits. And so you'd read in 27 bits and then I'd have a key, which told me how to turn the faces of the Rubik's cube to mix up those bits. And so with, with the encryption key, I would rotate the faces, you know, this is all virtual, this is all in software, but I would basically rotate this three by three by three array, like you would rotate, you know, different planes of a Rubik's cube and mix up all these bits. And then I would read them out the other side. And of course, to fix it, you would read the bits in, undo all those turns, and then you get back out the original bits. I thought that was pretty darn clever, but <laughs> I'm sure it was probably ridiculously simple to hack uh, if you were a good cryptographer, which I was not. All right, so I mentioned that originally what I wanted to do with all of this was to get Phil and I together and talk about how you would run a modern key sighting party. And again, a key sighting party uh, is something you would do if you were, you know, if you wanted to have your friends sign, digitally sign, cryptographically sign your public encryption key so that other people might look at that key and download it and say, oh, yeah, I mean, one of two things, either one, this person has gone to the trouble of getting this signed by a lot of people that lends some weight to it. But more hopefully, I would recognize somebody who had signed that key, a mutual friend or a mutual acquaintance of some sort that I trusted, or multiple people that I knew and trusted, which would make me feel better about using that key and thinking, yes, that really must be Carrie's public key. So we didn't, we, did, we didn't end up doing that. But what we did do, and what I did capture for bonus content for our patrons, which is just another fun reason to join Patreon, besides getting a cool challenge coin, I got Phil, the Phil Zimmerman, the creator of BGP, to explain how public key cryptography works, how you have these public and private keys, and, and how you can cryptographically sign these keys, and why you would want to, like, for example, to prevent a man-in-the-middle attack, and what a man-in-the-middle attack is, how it works. And how this led to his idea of signing keys and a web of trust and all these terms that we've, you know, that have come into the cryptographic lexicon, you know, originating uh, in part uh, from PGP. And of course, we did talk about, you know, how one might run a, a PGP key signing party and why doing it virtually over something like Zoom or FaceTime, you know, some, some virtual key signing party just really robs it of its, of its real appeal and its real purpose. So anyway, I captured that bonus content. It's about another half hour of material for my patrons, and that will be debuting for them later this week. 
All right, so Challenge Coins. The promotion will last until November 2nd. I think, I don't know, something got 11 p.m. Eastern time on November 2nd, so you've got a little over a week. I'll have one more podcast to mention this to you. But I know that a lot of people don't listen to these podcasts like the day they drop, so definitely want to mention it now. You've got one week left. If you join at the Castle Guard level, you can pick one coin. If you join at the Knight Errant level, you get all sorts of other cool benefits, but you get to pick two coins. And I will ship these off to you even internationally. There are only so many of these coins left on the planet. I only made 100 of them, and I, they're mostly about half gone now. And especially if you're looking for like the copper ones or some silver ones, I only, you know, I made different, different amounts of each color. So there's only so many of each color left as well. So now is your best chance to get the coin you want. Cause I, you know, I may mint more of these at some point, or I may just mint a new coin at some point. I'm not sure. So if you want to get one, now's your best chance. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and search on challenge coin, you'll see an article there. If you go to d20key.com and go to the coin tab, you'll find some information there. And of course, if you just go to patreon.com and search for firewalls don't stop dragons, uh, you'll find an article there, a public article there with more information as well. These things really are cool. I've got a lot of compliments on these challenge coins. I'm so, so glad I made them. I think they're, <laughs> I just think they're awesome. So coming up next week, I said I had two really great interviews coming. This was the first one. Uh, the next one is possibly maybe one of the most important interviews I've, I've ever done. And I will be interviewing Hari Hursty, who is a Finnish security guru and literally world-renowned election security expert. And we are going to be talking about how secure elections are in the United States. And we'll talk about a little bit. We'll make references to you know, elections around the world, because this applies everywhere. Anywhere there's a democracy, the most fundamental thing is voting and how you count those votes and making sure those votes are counted correctly. And crucially, making sure that the populace believes the outcome of the election. That is at least as important. And we're going to talk about all that. And it's been particularly here in the United States, it's been so confusing about, you know, are our elections safe or not? How secure are they? How would somebody hack a U.S. election? And has it been done? And of course, you know, what do we need to protect our elections? So I'll have a new show next week, but the week after that probably will be the interview with Hari Hursty. But I've got even more great interviews in the hopper. I've managed to make some great connections uh, recently. So we've got some really great interviews coming down the pike. Also stay tuned. Sometime in November, I will be doing a podcast and a blog article on my best and worst gift guide uh, with respect to privacy and security for 2021, something I do every year. So just tons of great content coming down the way. So if you haven't already, now would be a great time to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of it. And again, if you want to become a patron, there's lots of great benefits, including, you know, talking, interacting with me and other patrons directly on Discord. That's a lot of fun, but also a lot of bonus content. Um, I've created some interesting videos you might want to check out. I've got a whole video about how I make this podcast. I have a video about how I made the challenge coin. I often publish extra content for uh, my interviews. I'll ask them extra questions, get their origin story, or, you know, something kind of tangential or unrelated, but bonus. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a patron, you get access to that bonus content as well. So lots of great reasons to join, and the challenge coin is a great reason to do it sooner rather than later. All right, everybody, that'll wrap it up for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Get those shots. Get those boosters. Help other people get theirs. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.